In this lecture, we're going to go over urinary system disorders. Let's start with just a basic review of the functions of the kidney, because for the most part, people tend to think mainly of the importance of fluid balance with the kidney and waste removal. But because there's a couple other things that are important to remember that will come up in the end of this lecture when the kidneys fail, I, I wanted to just bring it to your attention, even though this was probably something covered in anatomy and physiology. So um, the kidneys have a really important role in regulating electrolytes by reabsorbing or secreting different types of electrolytes to maintain that balance, in addition to the pH balance, which those are both things we talked about at the beginning of the semester as part of, for example, the um, metabolic acidosis balance that's created from your normal metabolism. The kidneys are a really important component of making sure that your pH stays within that really tight range so that we're not having an, an inadequate environment for you to do your metabolic function. Now there's also the role of the kidneys in regulating calcium, and this came up in the endocrine lecture when we talked about parathyroid hormone um, and its role in regulating calcium, that it also has an influence on the kidneys itself for reabsorbing um, or excreting that particular mineral. We also have a really important role of the kidney itself in doing a check of your blood pressure. And then based on what it's detecting there, it may release renin, which you may recall when we talked about the cardiovascular system, um, is the first component or hormone released in the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, which is part of a vicious cycle in some individuals who have hypertension that can be sort of perpetuated as the individual increases blood pressure, that can also unfortunately make the kidneys detect that they're still not getting quite enough um, blood supply. Then there's also the role of the kidneys in stimulating red blood cell production in the bone marrow with the release of erythropoietin, which is one of those hormones that you make and influences the bone marrow. So the reason I bring these up, even though this is something you would have already had, is when we start talking at the very end of this lecture about what can happen when the kidneys fail, you're going to see the tie-in to calcium, you're gonna see the tie-in to blood pressure, and see a tie-in to anemia because of red blood cell production. I also want to just remind you of the different components and where they are. Because if you can remember some of the basic anatomy, it will be easier to remember where the actual signs and symptoms might be experienced in an individual who's having, for example, an upper UTI versus a lower UTI. So the kidneys are kind of up here at the back side of the body, and they're not really protected by any skeletal component. Um, and so an upper UTI, for example, tends to have pain or discomfort in the lower back, or actually it's more like mid to upper back, versus a lower UTI is involving mainly the bladder and the urethra, and so some of that discomfort would be in the lower pelvis. So on a microscopic level, I also want to remind you of the basic components of the nephron. 
because when we start talking about glomerulonephritis, for example, I want you to be able to remember what the glomerulus is. So you have this, um, like a quarter of your blood supply comes directly from the um, descending aorta and goes to the kidneys. So you have these um, vessels that break out into arterioles, go past the juxtaglomerular apparatus, which is where you detect and regulate the blood pressure with renin, and you have that breaking into a capillary bed. And surrounding this capillary bed starts the renal tubule. And that, this section here is called Bowman's capsule. And this is where you get your filtration. This in and of itself, whole component is called the glomerulus. And so this is where you're actually getting the action of filtration. Um, and so when we talk about glomerulonephritis here in a little bit, you'll be sort of remembering how this works in the sense that you do not get blood cells coming across in a normal um, filtration setting. You don't get um, proteins any larger than albumin crossing into the urinary space. And so if there's something wrong, that's when you will see some of those components getting across, but they don't normally get across into the urinary space. So that tubule then kind of becomes convoluted, hence the name proximal convoluted tubule. And here, some of the stuff that was able to cross, you reabsorb back into the bloodstream because after that capillary bed in the glomerulus itself, it reforms back into an arteriole that surrounds the tubule in order to reabsorb any of the things that you want to keep. So things like glucose, any amino acids, sodium and some other electrolytes, and most importantly, water, because this is where you're going to start regulating your uh, hydration state. If you're dehydrated, you will absorb a lot more. If you are in a good hydration state, you, your body might allow more water to be excreted as urine. So you have all this going on, and then it enters what is called the loop of Henle. And this goes into a much more concentrated area of the kidney. And on this side of the loop of Henle, water naturally leaves and goes back into the bloodstream by osmosis because everything around it is so highly concentrated that water naturally wants to go out and dilute this space. So in this process, you're concentrating the urine and it becomes more and more like urine as opposed to just an ultrafiltrate of your plasma, which is what it looks like up here because now you've reabsorbed a bunch of stuff that you wanted to keep and now you're concentrating it. So this is where the concentration of urine happens. When you get to this side of the loop of Henle, however, it's no longer permeable to water. So the only way that you're going to get further concentration of the urine after that point is if you have certain hormones present. For example, aldosterone from the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system has its roll right here at the end of the loop of Henle and the beginning of the distal convoluted tubule. Here, with the effect of aldosterone, you absorb, reabsorb sodium. And remember, in this case, water is only going to follow sodium if this hormone is present. That kind of helps that water absorption process with the help of sodium. So here, then, you are absorbing both sodium and water in the presence of aldosterone. 
You're also potentially getting other things moving the opposite direction. In the distal convoluted tubule, there may be some things in the bloodstream that you wanted to get rid of, but you couldn't get them across in the glomerulus itself. There might be drugs that you metabolized in the liver that you now need to get out into the urine. Um, you may need to make some changes to the pH of the blood, and so you might secrete some acids. You might secrete some other um, minerals or electrolytes that need to be balanced. And here, those things are gonna move from this efferent arterial into the distal convoluted tubule. And if you need to fine tune your hydration state even more, out here as you get into what are called the collecting ducts, and there's a whole bunch of them, so you would have multiple nephrons that all might be connecting at different places here. Here you can make some further changes to the concentration of water in the urine itself in the presence of anti-diuretic hormones. So you remember that also came up in the endocrine lecture. Um, and if you don't have the proper amount of this, that's when people have diabetes insipidus, where they urinate large quantities of very dilute urine. That's because when this is here, it keeps you from having diuresis. In other words, it's going to help you retain water, anti-diuretic hormone. So that's kind of a basic review so that when we start talking about some of these conditions, you can think back to, okay, this is where that's occurring in the nephron itself. So in all of these different conditions, there are certain tests that an individual might um, have ordered by their physician in order to either rule out um, a kidney condition or what's really cool about the kidneys or what is cool about the urine itself is that it can also give you a clue as to what is going on elsewhere in the body because it is a filtration system. So the nice thing about doing a urinalysis is that it is a nice non-invasive way to do various forms of screenings for things that might be going on. When a urinalysis is ordered, they take that urine specimen and do a bunch of different types of tests. Usually this involves a physical screening, a chemical screening, and if necessary, if either of these are abnormal or it can be ordered separately, and a physician might ask for a microscopic, or if something's abnormal here, they might do a microscopic to try to determine what that is that is causing the first two to be abnormal. So here, the physical tests involved in a urinalysis are the three C's, color, clarity, and concentration. And this actually goes way back to some of those um, medieval and ancient ways of trying to determine diagnosis of disease. So there are ancient, and I think we had a picture of a couple of them um, in our first lecture, that showed that even back then, different um, practitioners of the time would compare the color of urine to a chart in order to help determine if there was something wrong. And normally, it's sort of clear-ish, to light or medium yellow, depending on your hydration state. So if you're fairly well hydrated, it might be only very slightly yellow. If you are dehydrated, it's going to be a much darker yellow. The issues that might come up that indicate a problem, for example, is if there is a pink or reddish tinge to the urine, that's gonna indicate there might be blood or hemoglobin present. Um, in some cases, medication can turn urine a green or bluish color. 
Um, and there is even a particular bacteria that can change if there's a UTI with that bacteria that can change urine to a blue or greenish color. A sort of really dark orangish brown might indicate um, that there is bilirubin present, for example. There are some medications that can make your urine change color when it's exposed to light. So it would only be after it's been voided into the toilet that you would notice a color change. Um, or certain metabolic conditions, for example, that can make urine turn black when it is exposed to sunlight. So those are more rare, but these are probably pink and red um, are going to be one of the biggest things that we would be looking for as an indicator of bleeding somewhere. Now, clarity, in other words, can you see through it? If you were to hold up a tube of urine to the, to the light, um, how clear is it? Um, ideally, a urine should be clear because if it is cloudy in any way, that indicates that it contains some other substance that's obscuring the light getting through. These can be things like cells that would be abnormal. This could be bacteria growing or even crystals. And I'll show you what those are in just a second. So this is helpful too because it tells us um, that there might be something in there that's abnormal. Now, there are some times when you can have a little bit of cloudiness, particularly with women who don't do a clean catch specimen because there um, might be more contamination perhaps from the vaginal area um, or secretions of the vaginal area that ends up in the urine, but especially in men, it really should be quite clear, um, not cloudy. Concentration has to do with what they call specific gravity. So this is making a comparison of the weight, so to speak, of that urine to water. So if you have had chemistry or physics, you may be familiar with the term specific gravity. So it's comparing that same quantity of fluid to the weight of that same quantity of water, which means that if it weighs more than water, it has more um, stuff in it, more things dissolved in it. And in this case, um, when the specific gravity is equal to 1.010, that is what it is in the plasma. So in, if we looked at that yellow portion of your blood, that would be the specific gravity, um, which means that urine usually would be more than that because it is concentrated. If you're highly um, hydrated, it might be less. The issue is that in later stages of certain kidney disease, the urine is consistently the same as the specific gravity of plasma, which means the kidneys are not doing anything in order to conserve water. That the stuff that you filter out in the glomerulus is coming out the exact same way. The kidneys have not been able to change it at all. So that's why I bring that up because specific gravity could be part of an indication of whether the kidneys are able to concentrate urine very well. Now, chemical dipstick or test strips are probably something you've all seen at one time or another. And I know this image is a little bit small, but it's a plastic um, strip with a bunch of little pads that are on it that each contain a different chemical substance that goes through a reaction when you dip it into a test tube of urine. 
And what's great about this is each one of these pads tests for something different. This one might test for red blood cells. This one might test for white blood cells. It can test for bilirubin. It can test for glucose if you're screening for um, diabetes. It can um, screen for ketones. It can tell you the specific gravity and the pH all on this one neat test strip. So this is really kind of a cool way to screen for things both in the urine itself, and that might be going on in the kidneys, but also other organs. If you're finding bilirubin, for example, in the urine, that's gonna tell you something about the liver, or potentially that you have um, breakdown of red blood cells and the liver just can't keep up. White blood cells might mean infection. Glucose and ketones might be indicative of either a new um, diabetes diagnosis or that an existing diabetes diagnosis is not being well managed. So those are really great things to have, again, with a non-invasive specimen. Now again, if this is um, abnormal in any way, they usually do a microscopic. Now a glucose or a ketone or a bilirubin might not be necessary to do a microscopic, but especially if you're seeing red blood cells on this dipstick or white blood cells on the dipstick, you're going to spin that tube down and take a concentrated portion from the bottom of the tube and look at it under the microscope. And what's really great about this is it can tell you what you might um, be looking at um, for a diagnosis without even having done, again, anything invasive just yet. What you can see here is red blood cells. You can see white blood cells under the microscope. That's actually what these are these sort of glowing white things in this picture. Um, you can also see what are called epithelial cells. Epithelials um, line the entire urethra, they line the ureters, they line the bladder. And so while squamous epithelial cells are normal in the urine because they line the very outside of the urethra, the epithelials change size and shape as you move up in the system. So if you start seeing the kind of epithelial cells that are way up in the tubules, you know that there's been tubular damage. So that can also give you some good information about the state of the kidneys and the nephrons. You can see bacteria under the microscope. That's what these are. And it turns out that this is the shape of the most common organism responsible for UTIs. I'll come back to that in a minute. You can also see something under the microscope that's called a cast. What this is, in the way I like to think of it, is sort of a plug that's been washed out of the tubules. So if for some reason you don't have enough urine flow in those tubules of the nephron, you will get proteins that build up, and that's what this is, is a cast. Proteins that build up inside that tubule and sort of plug it, it gets stuck in there. And then eventually when you get enough urine flow to wash it out, it shows up in the urine as this tube-shaped um, substance that is just floating around in the urine. Now there are a bunch of different kinds of casts and that's not something you need to know for this class, but this is one of the more common ones that can be considered benign. It's called a hyaline cast and it can be present in anybody, particularly for example, athletes after an exercise event because the dehydration um, and low fluid intake, if it's a longer exercise event, might cause a slowdown in urine production if there's not enough 
flow of hydration state in that um, individual. There's other possibilities for casts that contain different cells. For example, if there's white blood cells or red blood cells stuck inside of this, we know that there's something more serious going on inside the, the nephron. You can also see crystals under the microscope. This is one of those other things that can make a urine not be clear when you're looking at it. And these are two examples of crystals, and they tend to form in different kinds of pH and usually in more concentrated urines. It's kind of like, and I'll talk about this in a second, it's kind of like when you're making Kool-Aid or another type of powdered drink. If there's not enough water as you're making that, the crystals kind of stay in a crystal form at the bottom of the glass or the pitcher. And the same thing happens in a urine. If you don't have enough water to balance out the different solutes, they begin to crystallize out. These are a kind called calcium oxalate that tend to form in a more acidic urine. These are called triple phosphate, and they you don't need to know this, but I'm just, sorry about that, giving you the information. And they tend to form more in a basic urine. Um, so both of these can be considered benign. However, depending on that individual and how hydrated they are, they can also be a potential risk for kidney stones forming. So we'll come back to that. Now, that is all done just with a urine. It's pretty neat that you can get that much information. However, if any of this looks abnormal, particularly if you have protein, one of these boxes on here is often protein. That might be something that you need to explore further that could mean that the kidneys are not working correctly. You may need to draw blood and do some blood tests. Some typical blood tests for kidney disease include blood urea nitrogen. So think about what the kidneys, one of the main waste products that you're trying to get rid of with the kidneys. That is urea, which is a nitrogen byproduct of protein metabolism. And so if you're not getting rid of that in an adequate amount, it's going to back up into the bloodstream. So as the kidneys lose their function, the blood urea nitrogen levels go up. You also have a byproduct of metabolism called creatinine from muscle metabolism. That is excreted at a fairly constant rate. And so if you have that increasing, it usually indicates that your glomerular filtration rate is getting lower. And that will come back into play when we get to the end of this lecture and we start talking about renal failure. Because as individuals get into chronic kidney disease, their filtration rate in the glomerulus gets lower and lower and lower and lower to the point where eventually they get a really high buildup of urea and creatinine and other waste products in the bloodstream. So GFR is a really important indicator of how well your kidneys are functioning. So let's talk about some of the actual conditions. Now this one isn't in your textbook, but it's pretty important for your future lines of work because it typically is just a benign condition, but could kind of scare an athlete um, if they're noticing this. This is called exercise-induced um, or exercise-related renal injury. And there's two different forms of this, one that's visible to the naked eye and the other one that's not really um, visible but might be detected by a screening test using that dipstick. So the first one is called sports hematuria. 
Hematuria is the technical term for blood or red blood cells in the urine. Now, this tends to happen most predominantly in people who do exercise for long duration at a very high intensity. So this might be a primary example of a condition of a long distance runner or a marathon runner. And there are a bunch of different theories out there as to why this actually happens. Quite honestly, I haven't found any consensus on it just yet. There are some theories, for example, that there is repetitive microtrauma. Um, particularly if you urinate right before running, there's the possibility that because the bladder is empty, that the walls of the bladder are sort of um, bouncing against each other, which is irritating the tissue and causing bleeding. That's one of the things I've read about. I've also read that the lactic acidosis that occurs during long distance high intensity exercise increases glomerular permeability. And so red blood cells, which is what you see here, are actually able to cross into the urine even though they're normally kept out of it with the glomerulus um, itself. So the recommendation I've seen that could help resolve this is to not void immediately before, but maybe 20 to 30 minutes before so that there's there's going to probably be a little bit of urine there in the bladder that will kind of cushion some of that repetitive microtrauma. Um, but again, that's just a suggestion that I've seen. I'm not sure that it can completely prevent this from occurring, but it is usually considered a benign condition. And with rest, an individual usually um, has that pink or reddish colored urine go away within 24 to 72 hours. Now, that being said, it's always a good idea to recommend um, that an individual go ahead and see their doctor if they're noticing this for the first time because they want to rule out any other potential causes like renal cancer, um, like a UTI, which can also both cause bleeding. So if this is a new occurrence, it might be something that you recommend that they go ahead and get checked out. And then if it continues to occur, Again, just to sort of be monitored. Um, but it's not that uncommon in um, some of your more trained athletes, and it may even go down in um, intensity after the individual has had a long enough time to sort of adapt to that. Now, the other possibility that you can't really see with the naked eye is called induced proteinuria. So this is protein in the urine. Now this isn't really visible, except that if the person happened to take a test tube or cup that was glass and clear, they might notice that their urine is cloudy. Quite often these would happen together, and so it might be harder to figure that out because the urine could be pink or red and cloudy just from the red blood cells that are present. Um, and here I've seen some indication from research studies that this has less to do with the long duration, but based on intensity. So even individuals who do um, shorter periods of time for exercise, if it's a higher intensity type of exercise, they may have proteinuria, but not have hematuria. There's also something I've seen in a few readings that suggest that with dehydration that this is more common, but this is another one that tends to resolve quickly without any permanent damage. But this may actually be one of the reasons that um, athletes have a greater requirement for protein because if they're losing protein in the urine through regular exercise, they may need extra protein to replace 
what they're losing in the urine. So this might actually be an explanation for that process. Now, the only way that an individual might know that they have proteinuria is if they did a um, dipstick test. Here's an example of a dipstick test that's sometimes used by diabetics. This one only has two pads on the dipstick, one for protein, I don't know if you can see that there, and one for glucose. So um, this is a type of dipstick used in diabetics to monitor for um, good management of glucose and then also to monitor for kidney disease, which is a common sequelae of diabetes. So this might not be something readily available to individuals, but might be found when the, they go into the doctor, if, especially if they're getting the hematuria checked out, they may also find they have protein in the urine at that time. But kind of some reassurance on your part that the individual just rest, get it checked out if it's the first time that it, it's ever happened, and then um, that it's okay to return to activity usually about 24 hours after they're no longer noticing any gross hematuria. In other words, blood in the urine that's visible to the naked eye. Um, another possibility, again, that's relatively common is incontinence. So this has to do with the involuntary passage of urine. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a large amount. In fact, quite commonly, it's usually only a very small amount of urine that an individual passes with incontinence. And there are some common explanations for this that are completely physiological, and then others that might be related to disease states. So it's a type of incontinence that's common with certain populations is called stress incontinence. And this happens anytime there's um, an increase in intra-abdominal pressure. And the most obvious example here is in pregnancy. So I don't know if you kind of remember from your anatomy and physiology, but the female uterus actually kind of sits right on top of the bladder. This is one of the reasons that um, women, pregnant women have to pee a lot is because the increased weight of the expanding uterus and the fetus puts pressure downward on the bladder. And so they often can't even get a full bladder before they feel like they have to urinate because of that pressure. Now, even after pregnancy, there's also the possibility because of that stress and stretching of the pelvic floor muscles that they become weak. And so you'll find that women, especially after multiple pregnancies, tend to have weak pelvic floor muscles. And so anytime they cough, sneeze, laugh, or lift, they may have the passage of a small amount of urine. Now, the thing that can help in avoid or avoiding or treating this is to do pelvic floor strengthening exercises like Kegels, because those are going to help make sure that you're maintaining that, um, that muscle tension naturally as a part of that physiologic response to pregnancy. Now, the other possibility is that the the sphincter muscle that normally keeps urine from exiting the bladder into the urethra is too weak. Um, and in that case, it's called overflow incontinence. And this happens sometimes as a natural process with aging, um, and it becomes an even greater issue as women who have had multiple pregnancies get older. Now, individuals who at any age retain their urine past the point um, when they feel like they have to pee. In fact, the term that um, goes with that urge to pee is called micturition. It's kind of a good vocabulary to work, vocabulary word to use with your friends. You know, you're out drinking sometime or something and you're like, I have reached the point of micturition and you walk away and go to the bathroom. Um, it's just the technical term for the urge to void. 
And we all have learned after the age of about three to um, prevent that voiding until we feel this urge. And so we can kind of control that voluntary process of voiding. But individuals who hold it for too long may find over time that they um, the extra weight of urine um, with a full bladder ends up weakening that sphincter muscle. Now, another um, reason that the sphincter muscle could become weak is spinal cord injury. So that would be a, a nervous system response that's no longer able to maintain the muscle tone of, of the sphincter muscle, and so they would have an overflow incontinence. Now, there's also the possibility that an individual has a specific type of incontinence that develops more quickly. So a sort of quick developing or recently developed um, type of incontinence is called either urge incontinence or transient incontinence. Typically this one happens and is associated with nighttime urination called nocturia and this might be something that happens with aging that they wake up more during the night and have to urinate. Or it's possible that all of a sudden they have a change in their urgency to void that is due to either a UTI or a new drug. So for example, individuals taking a diuretic, maybe for blood pressure, might now have episodes of incontinence because they are producing more urine than they had previously. So there are some other kinds out there, but probably stress and overflow are um, ones that you might come across in a normal population. Um, since I sort of made that allusion to UTIs there, let's go ahead and talk about those because those are a pretty common infection of the urinary tract. And there are different names for it depending on the location. The broad term for urinary tract infection occurring in the bladder as a primary location is called cystitis, and that's a part of the lower urinary tract. It could also be that the bladder itself is uninvolved, but it's just an irritation of the urethra itself. And sometimes this happens, an individual is having symptoms, they go in and give a specimen, and it doesn't appear that there's anything there. In that case, sometimes it could just be that bacteria have only irritated the very end of the urethra and they haven't colonized the bladder just yet. Now an upper UTI usually is called pyelonephritis and that involves the kidney itself. So this is a more serious condition because once you get up into the kidneys, not only does it involve um, a more thorough treatment, but it has a greater risk of recurring because bacteria might have the possibility of getting out of the nephron and into the interstitial space where they sort of continue to grow even potentially after an antibiotic, antibiotic treatment um, has occurred. The most common, and you definitely need to know this, the most common organism responsible for UTIs is normal flora E. coli from the GI tract. Now, this is not the type of organism that we recently talked about as causing enterocolitis or gastroenteritis. This is a normal flora strain that happens to be translocated from the GI tract to the normally sterile urinary tract, and that's called an ascending infection. So it makes its way from 
the exit of the GI tract to the entry of the urinary tract. And so that's kind of what you see here. E. coli from the intestine end up in the wrong location. Now you can imagine that this is more common of an occurrence in women just because of normal anatomy. The entrance to the urinary tract is in closer proximity to the intestines in women. There is a longer space in men between the entrance of the urinary tract and the entrance of the, or exit, I guess in this case is the better term, of the intestines. Um, and so things like poor hygiene or sexual activity make women more at risk because of this close proximity between these two parts um, of your anatomy, the exit of the urinary tract and the exit of the intestinal tract. Now there is, it's more rare, but there is the possibility that you could have a blood infection that descends from the blood to the kidneys. And this would usually lead to pyelonephritis first. That may then get filtered and travel down into the bladder. But by far the most common is an ascending infection from E. coli of the normal floor of the GI tract. Um, some things that might predispose individuals to this process is again women because of their um, anatomy, um, hygiene, let me make a list over here. So women, particularly with poor um, toileting hygiene, sexual activity, and other things that you can see here in men, their risk goes up if they have an enlarged prostate because that prostate enlargement doesn't allow a complete emptying of the bladder and that residual urine creates a good place for bacteria to grow. It's also possible that individuals might have a greater chance if they're immobile because the urine might not drain well from um, the system because they don't have the help of gravity here. Bloodborne organisms are what's going to lead to pyelonephritis first as they get filtered and go down through. Um, in terms of the pathophysiology, this is really going to depend on whether it's upper or lower UTI that's occurring. Um, but what happens here is um, usually with a lower UTI, you have dysuria, which is the technical term for painful or uncomfortable urination. It's sort of a burning, stinging feeling when the individual urinates. And they might find that they have to go more often, so greater frequency, and usually with an urgency. In other words, they may have just gone recently, but they have to go, and they have to go right now. It's not like they can hold it like you normally think about doing if you're not in a convenient place to use the restroom. It's much more difficult to do that. They may also find that there is blood in the urine because of that irritation of the lining of the urethra, bladder, or other tissues, depending on where we're where we're talking about this infection. And some individuals may have feelings of malaise. In other words, they just feel really crummy. And they may or may not have a fever. Now, a fever is far more common, fever, malaise, far more common with an upper UTI. But what um, goes along with this that might be different from a lower UTI is what they call flank pain or back pain. So again, think about um, the location of the kidneys. So if you have inflammation happening in the kidneys itself, then you're gonna um, have that sort of low, right below the ribs on your back, you're gonna have this 
sort of aching pain that's associated with the inflammation and sort of swelling or stretching of the renal capsule itself. It is more common with an upper UTI, although you can have it with a lower UTI as well, to have a fever and malaise. Um, and an individual will probably feel more crummy with an upper UTI than a lower, but that's not to say that you might not still have some of these same symptoms, particularly if both an upper and a lower UTI are occurring at the same time. You might have this whole list of symptoms, but if it's a lower UTI or urethritis only, you typically won't have that um, lower back pain associated with that. But finding out if that's what's going on has a, a relatively easy process in the sense that you can just get a urine specimen that you can do a screening on. And that screening, remember, can just include looking at the color, clarity, and specific gravity, and then doing a dipstick. Because what this dipstick might do is tell you, okay, there are white blood cells present, and something else that it can look for is called nitrates. Nitrates are something that occur because of bacteria present that have the capability of turning that urea nitrogen in the urine into a different form. Now, not all bacteria have the ability to do that. So an absence of nitrates and an absence of white blood cells does not necessarily mean you don't have a UTI. So if it's being suspected, they usually go ahead and ask for a microscopic and they might be looking for white blood cells and bacteria here to help with that indication. Something that's become relatively common is if there is a suspicion, they may go ahead and order that a culture and sensitivity be done because if it is a UTI, they want to make sure they have the correct um, drug to prescribe for treatment. And this is that Kirby Bauer method. You may remember, may remember me mentioning back in the uh, microbiology and anti-infectives lecture. So they grow that organism on a special plate and then drop discs of antibiotics there. So I wouldn't, um, want this individual on either of these medications because they really don't kill that bacteria at all. And sometimes they may start the person because this can take a couple days for this um, test result to come back. They may start the person on an antibiotic and then if they find out the antibiotic that's been prescribed is not one of these, then they'll call them back and tell them to stop taking the one that they were prescribed and take this one instead. For example, this one was able to kill a good amount of that organism really well. So whatever is prescribed for treatment is going to depend on that culture and sensitivity. But regardless of that, increasing fluids is going to be really important, not only to help flush out that bacteria, but also because it's going to help reduce side effects of some of these potential drugs. Many of these have, because they are supposed to have an effect directly on the bladder or kidney itself, they have an increased possibility of forming crystals um, as a result. And so having a lot of fluids is going to be important for kind of um, diluting out the urine as a result of that. And here's some of those drugs we've already talked about in the previous um, microbiology or infection lecture. We talked about how sulfa drugs are one of the most common drugs used to treat UTIs worldwide. And some of them, trade names you may re um, recall or at least have seen or heard of before are Bactrim and Septra. Um, penicillins, for example, amoxicillin. Um, the second generation sort of um, for penicillins that are resistant to pe penicillinase are cephalosporins like Kflex and Duracef. 
Um, carbapenems are a possibility. So these are some other ones you may see listed in your textbook. And because pregnancy is one of the times when you can get a UTI because of um, an inability to completely empty the bladder, and if glucose is present because of um, gestational diabetes, that also makes the risk increased because bacteria have a better place to grow. Um, but pregnancy, you have to be careful with taking certain drugs. So this is a drug that's sometimes prescribed to pregnant women who have a UTI. Now, there are some ways that you can try to avoid getting UTIs. So proper hygiene, particularly with women, that includes um, how, the way that you wipe after urinating, in addition to urinating after sexual activity, that can help flush out um, bacteria that may have entered the urethra. And just in general, having a lot of fluids, which you're supposed to drink a lot of water anyway, but that's going to make it so that you're urinating more often, which is gonna flush out any bacteria that have been able to make their way up into the urethra. But something else that can be a way to change the pH of the urine is cranberry juice. So um, this makes your urine a little bit more acidic and it contains a type of chemical called a tannin that has the ability to um, prevent or at least reduce the ability of certain organisms from attaching to the lining of your bladder and urethra. So remember some bacteria have an ability to attach to tissue with pili and certain other components. It's harder for them to do that when you have this um, substance that you've consumed and ends up in your urine because those chemicals are going to reduce their ability to attach. Now, for people who, because of the acidity of cranberry juice, can't really take it because it gives them heartburn um, or you know it makes their, their mouth sore because of the acidity, there is a pill form that you can take um, that would make it so that you're not having as much of an issue with the acidity, but you still get the tannins that are going to help with that. Now, the other thing that can happen um, sometimes in, in an individual is the formation of kidney stones. And the formal term for this is urolithiasis. Now, urolithiasis um, can happen more often in certain populations or in certain conditions. Sometimes there's a family history that might make an individual um, more predisposed to this. But the biggest reason for these occurring is because the individual is not having enough urinary flow and or um, they have too many solutes. So again, my analogy to this is kind of that Kool-Aid powdered drink kind of thing. Or another way to think of this is if you've ever made rock candy, it's kind of the same process. So when you have a fluid that is really highly concentrated, in this case of making rock candy, it's sugar. But what happens is when it's really, really highly concentrated and you don't have enough water to dilute it out, you get crystals that can't dissolve. Or in this case, crystals are forming because of the solutes are at a greater concentration than the water needed to dilute them. And so these crystals form and they eventually kind of pile upon each other and make a stone. Now there are a bunch of different kinds of stones out there. Some are really tiny that you can hardly see with the naked eye and some are really huge and can become um, unable to pass independently. For example, the one that you see here in this picture is called a staghorn calculus that actually forms in the collecting ducts of the kidney itself and can block the exit of urine completely from that 
entire kidney. It kind of, the reason it's called a staghorn calculus is because it kind of looks like deer antlers. Um, and so this can be a really serious condition that might even require surgery or a, um, a type of treatment called lithotripsy that I'll talk about in just a second. But the issue that these create is not only are they extremely painful, but they may obstruct the flow of urine. Even ones that are this small could block the ureter or the urethra so that they might not be able to get any urine past that point. Now, why do these happen? Well, the formation of um, most, and I think it's something like 75% of all stones, is some sort of calcium salt. And those tend to form more in an alkaline um, urine. And this is um, an example of a calcium salt that forms a crystal. And they tend to form in individuals depending on pH, again, and their fluid level. So being dehydrated makes it more likely that you could have stones forming, so low fluid intake. There are some other things that can increase the likelihood as well. Certain medications can not only change the pH of the bloodstream, but also cause you to make more um, waste byproducts. For example, the other 25% or so of stones that aren't made of calcium are made of a uric acid or a uric um, ureate salt. And so those can be increased in occurrence in medications that cause you to make more urea. Infection can increase your risk because that bacteria from the infection forms what we call a seed. And that seed allows other minerals and substances to bind to it and get larger and larger and larger. In fact, this sort of seed could be initially a crystal, it could be a bacteria, it could be a cell, um, any of a number of things could be that very first thing that starts the process with increased solutes beginning to deposit as it grows and grows and grows, if, especially if there is a reduced flow because of not enough fluid. The other possibility here is certain diseases. Um, for example, chemotherapy, mainly because of the medication used in that, um, cancer, um, anything that increases your production of nitrogenous waste, those can also be something that increases your risk as well. So the signs and symptoms here, probably the biggest one is pain. And along with that, they might notice a decrease in urine, um, urination. So this happens in particular if that stone is blocking one or more of the exit points. In other words, either the ureter or further down in the urethra or up here if it's a really large staghorn calculus, it could actually be blocking um, the entire exit from that kidney. So they might have a decrease in urination along with um, back pain or if that um, kidney stone is farther down in the urethra or in the bladder, then that pain may be a little bit lower in the pelvis. And in some cases, the pain is um, pretty severe enough to produce nausea and vomiting. The issue with this, unfortunately, is that um, sometimes they don't do anything other than give you fluids. So if it's a pretty small stone, what they tend to do is do some sort of imaging. They might do ultrasound, for example, and try to look for where that stone is. 
And if it's small enough and it's already in the bladder or it's already in the urethra and working its way out, they might just give you pain medication um, and have you urinate and increase fluids and have you urinate into a sieve like this so that they can see it when you pass it because they typically do some sort of analysis on it and try to determine what it's made out of because they can maybe make recommendations of what you can do to change your diet or other risk factors if it's high in calcium, for example. Um, but in the meantime, they might do pain meds or in some cases drugs that will change the pH um, in order to try to dissolve it a little bit and then increasing fluids so that you pass it. Now in cases like this, they may have to do surgery or what they call lithotripsy. Lithotripsy is a fancy word for um, what they call extracorporeal, in other words, outside of the body, corporeal, I can spell, um, shockwave therapy. Sometimes abbreviated ESWL. Um, and so extracorporeal shockwave lithotripsy is what that stands for. So these ultrasound shockwaves um, try to aim directly at that stone and break it up into smaller pieces. And those smaller pieces may more easily pass through the ureter so that they can avoid doing surgery because that is gonna be more invasive and depending on the individual's other disease states, it might not be a possibility. But again, trying to do some sort of analysis on that so that they can figure out what the stone is made out of. They may tell you then, for example, to try to avoid certain um, foods high in oxalates because that's what this um, type of crystal contains. Um, unfortunately, for individuals who have to do this, these are some really um, nutritious components um, in a diet that they may have to cut out. So um, the individual treatment for trying to avoid that going forward is probably gonna involve some counseling of some sort. Another um, really big heading or group of kidney diseases is called glomerulonephritis because that's a really big word. They tend to just abbreviate it, GN. But what you need to realize about this if you break down that word is that this is inflammation of the glomerulus portion of the nephron. And there are a bunch of different types and terminology that is used to describe it. There are a ton of different kinds. Now, your book really only talks about, in depth, one of them, which is post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis. I'm going to introduce you to a couple others because they are significant for particular reasons. Um, so this is some content that you wouldn't find in the book because it's not quite as thorough on some of these items. So you can usually distinguish the types of glomerulonephritis as either acute, that they usually recover pretty easily from, versus chronic glomerulonephritis that may involve scarring and may progress um, with inflammation to eventually a form of um, chronic kidney disease. It could be a primary condition. For example, we'll talk about several kinds that have an autoimmune component that's directly affecting the glomerulus versus secondary to some other disease like diabetes, which is a very common sequelae, for example, of that condition. 
It's also possible that the term that's used to name the form of glomerulonephritis is based on why it's caused. So that's where post-streptococcal comes in as its name. That's because it tends to occur only after an infection of a certain type of streptococcal organism. Then sometimes they name these types of diseases based on what happens, the pathophysiology, the microscopic changes. So there's um, acute proliferative is another type that is describing the changes to the glomerulus itself. And then the clinical presentation might be one of the ways that they describe it. Um, for example, your book doesn't go into distinguishing these, but I'm going to help you understand the difference between nephritic syndrome and nephrotic syndrome, which is only one letter different. So we'll talk about that here in just a second. But these are the types that I'm going to um, give you one particular thing to remember about each one. Um, but there are even a whole bunch of others here that I'm not going to go over. Um, for example, Wegener's granulomatosis, microscopic polyangitis. I'm not going to ask that you know those. I'm only going to ask that you know these five, and I'll tell you why for each one of them, because they have some sort of significant issue associated with them. But before I can do that, I need to tell you what the difference is between nephritic syndrome and nephrotic syndrome, because each of those types of glomerulonephritis usually has either more of a nephrotic component or more of a nephritic component. So realize that there is only one letter difference between these two terms. So when you look at the exam, for example, you need to read very carefully. And what I like about this particular image is of all the different types of glomerular diseases, it kind of shows you the big differences between the types of symptoms that you might see. So those that have more of a nephrotic component are going to have more issues with protein in the urine. Those that have more of a nephritic component are going to have more issues with blood in the urine. So you do have the possibility of both, particularly when you get over here in nephritic syndrome. You could have both high protein in the urine and blood, but in some of your nephrotic syndromes, protein becomes the biggest issue. So let's describe the difference between the two. I'm going to start with this one here, nephritic syndrome. Nephritic syndrome, its biggest hallmark, so to speak, is blood in the urine or hematuria. They also tend to have hypertension and that is partly due to an increase in renin occurring as a result of the glomerulonephritis. They may have azotemia, which is having urea in the blood work. In other words, the blood urea nitrogen is increased. They will have low urine production, and that term is oliguria. So they're not producing as much urine as they used to. And they may have edema. And this is probably because of a decrease in the glomerular filtration rate. Now that being said, you will see here in just a second that you also have edema in nephrotic syndrome, but it's due to a different cause. So this again can be confusing because some of these symptoms do overlap, but typically the reason for this is different. Um, nephritic syndrome often is more autoimmune in etiology. Nephrotic syndrome, its 
primary component is what we call marked or significant proteinuria. So protein in the urine. So remember, this is the nephrotic side where protein is the issue. Now, because of this protein getting out in the urine, they have low protein in the bloodstream. That is called hypo, in this case, it's albumin primarily, albuminemia. So low albumin in the bloodstream. Now, if you recall, one of the primary reasons that you are able to maintain your blood pressure or at least maintain fluid in the bloodstream, it's because of that oncotic or osmotic pressure that albumin um, imparts on the bloodstream. So without enough protein in the bloodstream, water is going to leave. So you end up with edema here too, but this is largely due to protein loss and loss of oncotic pressure in the bloodstream. Sorry about that. And so here, what the liver does is it says, oh my gosh, there is not enough protein in the bloodstream. I need to get into gear and make more proteins to replace what's being lost. The thing is, once the liver starts producing proteins, it ends up producing a bunch of other things too. And one of those things that it ends up making is more lipids. Because remember, your liver is responsible for making cholesterol, for example. So you end up now with lipids getting into the urine. You get lipids in the urine and then also because that's being filtered from the bloodstream. So you get hyperlipidemia. So, sorry about that, very frustrating. Um, so here, that protein loss stimulates the liver and they make more apoproteins in addition to a bunch of other things. So now you have more lipids in the bloodstream that end up in the urine as well. So these are components that tend to be more included in nephrotic syndrome here rather than nephritic syndrome. That being said, you could potentially have some of these issues overlapping somewhere in the middle. So we're going to talk about some of these different types of glomerulonephritis. For example, IgA nephropathy tends to be more of a nephritic syndrome as opposed to minimal change disease, which is more of a nephrotic syndrome. So let's go over some of those. Let's start with the one that your book talks about, which is acute post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis. So in this one, it happens usually about um, maybe seven to 10 days after a group A beta hemolytic strep pyogenes infected infection. This is the fancy term for the organism that causes strep throat. So this is more common in children after they've been infected with the organism that causes strep throat. This is also an organism that can cause ear infections as well. So it doesn't have to exclusively occur after strep throat, but it does have to be associated somehow with this organism because you end up making antibodies to that organism that combine with antigens here and sort of cross-react with things in the glomerulus. So these, this is actually almost like a, a, a type three 
um, hypersensitivity response. So you get these floating antigen and antibody complexes that deposit on the glomerulus as it's being filtered. And that starts an inflammatory response. And one of the things that occurs in this inflammatory response is complement is activated. Remember, complement has a bunch of different types of proteins that form a cascade. And so one of those proteins in this cascade is called C3. And that's one of the ones that becomes most predominant in this reaction. So here's kind of an image of what's happening here. You've got these antigens and antibodies that deposit here as part of the glomerular basement membrane. And then complement begins to be activated. If you remember, one of those endpoints of the complement cascade is the membrane attack complex, or the MAC. I don't know if you recall the image and what that does, but the membrane attack complex sort of deposits these proteins in a circle and pokes a hole in that cell surface. The issue here is that it's not a bacterial cell that it is being attacked on the surface of the membrane with this MAC complex. It's your glomerular basement membrane. And so you end up now with an immune reaction and an inflammatory response all because this complement is attacking the glomerular basement membrane. And so this part of the epithelium and the end, I'm sorry, the endothelium here that's being damaged is now going to let things through that don't normally get through. And one of those big things is red blood cells. And so this leads to nephritic syndrome. So here you get a malaise edema, and a dark cloudy urine, and the main reason for that dark cloudy urine is because of red blood cells. You get hypertension and a low urine production, and as I said, this is usually in children, and um, it's avoidable if you can treat the strep infection relatively quickly with antibiotics, but in some cases, it either goes unnoticed or untreated, and this would be then sort of a sequelae or complication of um, that strep infection. One of the ways you can determine that this is probably what's going on is to do what's called an anti-streptolysin O titer. Remember, titers are ways that we measure the quantity of antibodies in an individual. And this is something that you would have made as an antibody to this strep um, organism. You can also test for how much complement is left because what you'll find is if this is the cause for the glomerulonephritis, the levels of complement will decrease. They'll be low because they're being used up here to do this reaction. Sorry about that. Every time I tap, it advances. Um, and then you can do other forms of kidney function tests like glomerular filtration rate, etc., to help um, in diagnosis. The treatment here is just supportive. There's really not a whole lot we can do. It's an immune reaction that's occurring. The organism has probably already been cleared from the body, so antibiotics aren't really going to help. It's not um, organisms that are attacking the glomerulus. This is just a, an inflammatory reaction with those antigen and antibody complexes. Usually individuals completely recover. About 10%, 5 to 10% may um, progress into a more serious form of glomerulonephritis and ultimately chronic kidney disease, but that is rare, especially um, if this infection is happening, happening after childhood. 
Um, it is more rare for glomerulonephritis to occur after strep infection in um, teenagers and older and in, in mid to later age adults. Let's talk about a couple of the other forms of glomerulonephritis and how they're different. So membranous glomerulonephritis is the most common cause of nephrotic syndrome in adults. It is autoimmune. And what happens here is you get a thickening of the basement membrane of the glomerulus. So if this is a normal capillary and the glomerulus, you're going to get a thickening of this basement membrane that makes up the glomerulus. And so that makes it harder for things to get across. What you end up happening here, ha happening here is increased proteinuria, which means now you have less of it in the bloodstream, hypoalbuminemia, which leads to edema, and then you end up with hypertension and hyperlipidemia and lipiduria. Again, all because of this nephrotic syndrome. Unfortunately, this one more commonly does progress. With this one, it may slowly progress to renal failure. And this may be a potential cause of what we'll talk about at the end of the lecture as chronic kidney disease. This is an interesting one called minimal change disease uh, or minimal change glomerulonephritis. This one is easy to understand because it has very minimal changes associated with it. This is the most common cause of nephrotic syndrome, but in children, okay? So this is the difference here. Here, again, same type of idea, proteinuria, edema, lipiduria, lipidemia, but this one tends to have less issues with hypertension um, than you would in the adult form with membranous glomerulonephritis. So here, you're not getting a whole lot changing. If you were to look at that endothelial, you don't see this thickening that you do in membranous, but there are enough changes that are going to allow protein to get across. We don't know why this happens, but typically if you treat with steroids to get the inflammation down, most children tend to recover fully. So the, the biggest issue you would notice that would lead you to go to the doctor here is that the individual is, or the child, has edema and you especially tend to notice it in the face. So they might have very puffy eyes and cheeks and eyelids. And so you take them to the doctor and they do a urine and find out that it's high in protein. And so that would cause them to do further investigation. Treat with steroids, tend to, to, to um, recover fully. IgA glomerulonephropathy is the most common cause of glomerulonephritis in the world. It is autoimmune and it happens more often in young men but it can happen in anybody. It has more association rather with protein, but instead with blood in the urine. When it happens in children, they tend to recover. As individuals get older, there's a more risk of individuals progressing to a chronic kidney disease. So this sometimes is called Berger disease or Berger's disease. And it seems to happen, interestingly, after some sort of respiratory infection um, or GI infection. And this may be one of the reasons why it's one of the most common worldwide, because um, in um, less developed countries who might not have the ability to rapidly treat respiratory or GI infections, this then may be an autoimmune reaction that's occurring as a result of that initial infection. The last one I want to talk about then is um, the possibility of any of those forms of glomerulonephritis progressing. Um, chronic glomerulonephritis 
tends to be something that we may or may not know the cause of. So for example, about half we think we know why they happen, that we can look back in their history and find that they were diagnosed with an acute form of glomerulonephritis somewhere in their past. However, sometimes people show up with chronic glomerulonephritis and we can't determine that they had a form of glomerulonephritis in their past. If they did, it was asymptomatic or they didn't seek treatment. And here's kind of a neat graphic that will tell you of all those different kinds, and, and actually some of them we didn't talk about at all, that might be an influence on glomerulonephritis that becomes chronic. So as I mentioned, most people, most children recover from prostoptococcal. Um, that tends not to progress, but IgA nephropathy um, tends to have between 30 and 50% that progress to chronic glomerulonephritis. Half of some of these others that we didn't really talk about can progress to chronic glomerulonephritis. And then there is a type we didn't really talk about called rapidly progressive, hence its name, that the majority of people who have that can end up progressing to chronic glomerulonephritis. What can happen in the chronic cases of this is that they end up with um, anemia, fatigue, weight loss, and they end up with proteinuria that might not be um, enough to make them have edema in the early stages. In other words, it's occult or hidden in the early stages, but eventually progresses enough to show signs of edema. And then they may have issues with hypertension. What you'll notice is that these um, symptoms are going to parallel the signs and symptoms of chronic kidney disease that we'll talk about at the end of this lecture. Another one that I really want to mention here, because it is the most common cause of renal failure in the United States, is diabetic glomerulosclerosis. So as a result, especially of um, not adequately managed glucose levels in the bloodstream, you can have damage to the blood vessels of the glomerulus itself. And that's called glomerulosclerosis. They actually sort of stiffen as a result of high glucose levels in the bloodstream. So here, um, kind of like how glucose can attach itself to albumin um, or hemoglobin, you get glucose attaching to the, the protein that deposits in the glomerulus. And then you end up with um, a thickening and you get the glomerulus having to work so much harder that it damages the nephrons completely. And this ends up leading to chronic kidney disease that eventually is the primary cause of kidney failure in the United States. Now, typically what term individuals use for that is renal failure, but you can have forms of renal failure that occur um, that are totally reversible. So here usually acute renal failure is considered reversible um, decreased kidney function if treatment is, is um, administered relatively quickly. And that depends on the cause because there are a bunch of different causes. So the potential causes could be something that happens way before things get to the kidneys. So this could be trauma, for example, that causes a massive loss of blood. And so there's a drop in blood pressure in other words, hypotension or shock. And that means that without blood to the kidneys, then they experience ischemia. And just like all your other tissues, they then go through um, a, a process where tissue is stressed 
and potentially dies um, if that lack of blood supply happens over a longer period of time. If you can restore blood flow to the kidneys relatively quickly, you may be able to recover because you do have a pretty big reserve in the kidneys themselves. So that could be a pre-renal cause. You could also have damage to the kidney itself, which would be called an intrarenal or sometimes just renal cause of um, acute failure. Here it might be that you have inflammation like glomerulonephritis. You could have ingested or had a toxin that is causing damage to the tubules or the nephron itself, certain drugs. Um, and the reason that these are listed separately, even though a drug could be considered a toxin, is sometimes there are things that are normally part of your physiology that could be toxic. For example, myoglobin from the um, muscle cells is toxic to the kidneys. So if you have a crush injury from trauma that releases myoglobin into the bloodstream, that can be very toxic to the kidneys. In fact, it could be a reason that an individual goes into renal failure after some form of, of trauma. Um, hemoglobin can also be toxic, but it has to be a really high concentration. So if somebody had um, a hemolytic anemia, for example, um, and their red blood cells were lysing, that would have to be a really high quantity in order to be toxic. So it doesn't always have to be a toxin that you ingest as a drug, but that's certainly a possibility. Infection and, and anything that reduces the blood supply and causes damage to the kidney tissue itself. Then there are post-renal causes, and usually this has to do with some sort of obstruction. This could be an enlarged prostate, this could be a kidney stone, this could be an infection that's causing um, you know, a backup of fluid, a tumor, or any other injury that um, causes you to not be able to completely empty the bladder and then things sort of back up into the kidneys. So those are possibilities, all of them. But what distinguishes this from chronic kidney disease is it has a more rapid onset. And that rapid onset leads to either a low urine production or anuria, which is no urine production. So oliguria is low urine production versus anuria is no urine. And what you would see in terms of the, the tests that are done would depend on the cause. So especially if there is shock or hypotension, you would most certainly have very low urine production because there's just not even enough blood to be filtered at that point. What you would find here in the bloodstream is that those waste products build up and you would get an elevated blood urea nitrogen and an elevated creatinine in the blood work. Because you can't get rid of the acids from metabolism, you'll go into a metabolic acidosis, and you have a hard time regulating some of those electrolytes and minerals, and you may go into a phase of hyperkalemia as well. Now, one of the potential issues here is that um, the cause of the form of acute renal failure might mean that there are no changes at all. So there is the possibility of no real changes in the urine if you have the main reason as um, shock, if you can restore the blood flow right away. And so in that case, then um, there might not be a whole lot of changes to the bloodstream. It would mainly just be that you have low urine production if you can get that amount of uh, blood flow back up, then you can restore and, um, the flow and creation of urine without um, a backup of some of that into the system. 
So you have to treat whatever that primary condition is before you can um, expect that things are going to improve. In the meantime, though, that individual may have to be on dialysis. In other words, artificial filtration. The possibility here is that if treatment for acute renal failure is not effective or the damage is too severe, a person may at some point progress to chronic kidney disease. And the causes of chronic kidney disease are many things we've already discussed. In fact, the most common cause of chronic kidney disease is diabetes mellitus and hypertension. It could also be caused by autoimmune disease such as lupus or other conditions that permanently damage the kidney itself such as chronic glomerulonephritis or some sort of renal toxin. And we talked previously about myoglobin having a potential risk of being toxic to the kidneys. Now I have come across many different attempts at categorizing or labeling the stages of chronic kidney disease. But what I want you to realize about here is that unlike acute renal failure, the progression of chronic kidney disease is irreversible. These stages are unlikely to go in a reverse direction. They will progress forward. And so there are systems that may use stages such as this with potentially five different chronic kidney disease stages. But I've also read more recently that categorizing in that way may not be necessary because some of these beginning stages may go unnoticed. And in fact, while there may be physiological or laboratory changes that could be seen if they were looked for, there are not clinical changes. So unless you were already being observed for kidney changes because of something else, then you, you may not see these changes that happen in the very early stages. In fact, some of what I've read recently indicates that these, these first couple stages could likely be, be combined together because they really don't produce anything clinically that could be seen. But what you can perhaps categorize them in your head more readily is what's happening with the nephrons. In the very early stages that could be called decreased reserve, that kind of coincides with what's labeled here as stage one and stage two. You can lose up to 60% of the nephrons. And what's crazy about this is this is still asymptomatic. And right here, what, what may be present if someone were to visit the doctor and someone were to look, there may be an elevated blood pressure and there may be some protein in the urine, but neither of those produce clinical symptoms. And so if it's looked for in laboratory testing, it, it may be caught, but this could just go by without any potential issues. And it's not perhaps until you get um, into insufficiency, which could have upwards of three quarters of your nephrons loss. So 75% of your nephrons lost. Here, you finally start to get what you might see as renal symptoms. 
So up here in decreased reserve, this is already less than about half of your normal glomerular filtration rate. And you can see here in this description that this probably coincides somewhere with the middle of the stage three, where you've, you've got only around maybe half or so of or less of your typical glomerular filtration. But at that point now, you may start to get an inability of the kidneys to concentrate urine. So what this leads to when you get to insufficiency is what we recall is polyuria. So larger amounts of urine, and that urine is dilute. So the kidneys are losing the ability to concentrate and retain the fluid that you're trying to conserve. And then what may be happening if you were to look at the blood is you would begin to see an increase in the blood urea nitrogen or BUN in the bloodstream. But that again would require a blood test. You may also begin to see signs of anemia in this stage. And that's because remember that erythropoietin is made by the kidneys. And so as this disease progresses, you're going to start to get the effects to the other systems in which the kidneys play a role, such as hypertension and anemia. You would also, as you progress farther, lose more and more of your kidneys, get or, or of your nephrons, and get less and less of the glomerular filtration rate. As you progress, if you were to enter into ESRD, which is end-stage renal disease, it is at this point that you may have lost greater than 90% of the nephrons. And here, rather than an excess of urine that's very dilute, you begin to have very little urine being produced. So you end up with that fluid backing up into the system, causing edema. And the blood urea nitrogen continues to escalate and you're going to get urea itself backing up into the system. So instead of azotemia, which you would get here, which is when you have an elevated blood urea nitrogen, here you would have uremia, which is urea in the bloodstream. Again, both things the kidneys would normally be filtering and getting rid of from your protein metabolism and the Krebs cycle. So here we've got potentially fatigue, swelling because of that edema, nausea, vomiting, and this buildup of blood urea nitrogen and urea in the blood ends up causing all kinds of complications. So in addition to some of the hypertension anemia we may have had in some of the earlier stages, now on top of that, we've got to worry about the toxicity of this urea to the other systems that it's now being you know, filtered through. So you could have neuropathy and encephalopathy. In fact, heart failure, partly because of the increase in fluid, the excess fluid your heart now has to try to pump in your bloodstream, but also the, the urea that is being put into the system that could be toxic to those other tissues. You have an increased risk of infections, so there's all kinds of potential complications. And at this point, when somebody gets to end-stage renal failure, they quite likely are placed on dialysis, an incredibly exhausting process in which they go to a dialysis center and have to have their blood manually filtered. Um, so they remove it, 
filter it and put it back in. And it's just exhausting. Happens multiple times during the week in order to keep up with that buildup of urea and try to overcome its collection in the system. Now, the possibility also is that depending on the original cause of the chronic kidney disease, they may be eligible for a transplant. Uh, for example, um, lupus may be a more difficult one to meet those criteria because that is a systemic autoimmune disease that may damage um, any transplant. Whereas if adequate treatment of diabetes or um, high blood pressure is present, a transplant may be quite beneficial in that case. Or if it was a toxin that originally, or chronic glomerulonephritis that originally led to this, and that has been resolved, then a transplant could effectively be um, a lifesaver for these individuals. So as you can see here, even if you're using various different forms of categorizing this, they tend to follow this irreversible progression that leads to a very decreased glomerular filtration rate and a buildup of any of those things the kidneys normally take care of. So um, in general, if you have any questions about what happens in this process, these things that may lead to glomerulonephritis, um, infection, kidney stones, acute and chronic renal failure and chronic kidney disease, please let me know. Again, it's a lot of material, but it's something that um, I want to make sure that you have a good understanding of. So reach out with any questions.